Welcome to the Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. So today, we're going to be talking about two different issues, but actually, they, they're very connected. And uh, one is talking about uh, controlling or somehow restricting the use of gas-powered small engines such as are used in leaf blowers and other lawn care equipment and then after that we're going to be speaking to someone who's been fighting the mountain valley pipeline in west virginia and virginia and if that goes through it would carry lots of fracked gas through the two states and uh do incredible damage so we're going to hear, and there was some good news uh, regarding that fight. So we're going to hear about that from somebody who's on the ground there. But first, I want to welcome Stan Heller, um, who has his fingers in a lot of pies or issues uh, in Connecticut, uh, global issues and local issues. And uh, today we're going to be talking about this effort, your effort to, uh, well, ban if possible or somehow regulate these incredibly polluting, noise polluting and, you know, air pollution creating kinds of equipment. And I just have to say, a couple of days ago, I went outside, it was a beautiful day, and I was assaulted by uh, people working at, at my next door neighbor's yard with not one, not two, not three, not four, but five people with those horrible leaf blowers i mean they were oh. falling all over each other it's a small yard i mean it was crazy mm -hmm. and i i just said oh i can't believe it so anyway uh stan tell us what you are trying to do so i work for promoting enduring peace which is a peace and environmental organization and uh, we're very concerned about the earth falling off the climate cliff the warnings about the year 2030 and so on. And uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, we, we noticed uh, the, the people who have been warning uh, or talking about the pollution coming from small gas engine, these small engines, and they're incredibly polluting. They, they don't, uh, have any kind of filters. They don't have the things that a car has, a, a car with a gas engine, uh, any pollution controls. And uh, a lot of the gas isn't even burned. It, it's just aerosolized. And we're talking about uh, all kinds of equipment from lawnmowers to leaf blowers to uh, edgers, trimmers, uh, uh, power saws, etc. And the amount that they burn is substantial. In our, in our little state of Connecticut, it's, uh, it's about 40 million gallons of year, a year burned just for lawn care, 40 million gallons. California in 2020, it was 400,000. I'm sorry, 400 million, you know, approaching half a billion gallons of gas burned. So the, the persons who are hurt the most are the lawn care workers. You, you mentioned those uh, four or five in your neighbor's yard. And, and 
these people are working in a chemical stew, really bad, uh, bad toxic uh, gases, and then these tiny particulates that uh, nobody notices, but they can go deep in the lungs, cause cancer, and all kinds of other terrible things. But then anybody in the area, you know, those toxic uh, particles and gases go into the lungs of people where they're uh, working. And then there's the, the global warming effects of the, uh, the gasoline that's burned and, and the, the amount of carbon dioxide that uh, shoots up into the atmosphere and contributes to global warming. So uh, we've been working on that issue. So there's, there was a bill uh, in the state legislature. And mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to, to run through the details. I believe that it was, it included something about uh, referencing these small engines and then, and I thought it was taken out of the bill. So just update us on, on where things stand and if there's a chance of still getting anything through uh, in this year's uh, General Assembly in Connecticut. So the bill is SB 1145, SB is Senate bill, that's where it originated. So SB 1145 had some language that would incentivize the purchasing of electric powered lawn equipment. And the way it worked is that a, um, a retailer would have a coupon uh, and say, okay, rebate program, you know, you buy our electric power lawnmower or leaf blower and we'll give you $50 off, or $70 off, and, you know, you fill out the paperwork and you get the money back. And then the state of Connecticut would have a special fund and they would compensate the re retailer. And there was a good amount of uh, money appropriated, $10 million in the, in the language of this bill. And unfortunately, I was listening into the, uh, or watching rather, the committee meeting, the environment committee, uh, about this. And they get to the bill and the, the chair says, well, it's kind of a complicated bill. It has a lot of different things. We're making it simpler. We're taking out all the language about small gas engines. <laughs> I was pretty disappointed about that. Uh, now, uh, the bill, without that language, it, it targets uh, other areas uh, doing work to, to help with climate uh, goals uh, that did go from the committee to the full legislature. And then, uh, as I understand it, any legislator can uh, propose an amendment, get it seconded, debated, and so on. We're hoping uh, after the uh, Easter break that uh, something be done in this uh, in this fashion. And I, and I had this article in the uh, Connecticut Mirror where we talk about these issues. And so uh, hopefully the legislators will see that and um, realize it's a wise proposal and bring this back in. We're talking about $10 million of a $25 billion budget. Right, right. So if we got that language back in, it would 
going forward, obviously uh, incentivize people to buy the, you know, the electric versions of the this equipment, but it wouldn't do anything to remove the ones that are already out there, right? They, they can just keep operating, correct? That's right. It's a, a capitalist incentive, pro-business, that kind of thing. It's a very small step. Uh, other areas have taken uh, bigger steps. In Washington, D.C., you can't use any of that equipment, any gas-powered equipment for lawn care. In a much bigger place, in California, starting January, you can't, you can't buy this equipment, gas-powered equipment. It's not a matter of incentives. You just will not be allowed to buy new equipment. Uh, though they're, they're not going to grab your gas-powered lawnmower. You know, it's, again, a, kind of a gradual process. But we need to do all kinds of things to uh, preserve the climate if there's any hope of uh, preserving the, the 1.5 degree Celsius increase and not go on to, uh, you know, two, three or whatever horror awaits us. Right. I remember a few years ago after, um, in 2018, there was this devastating tornado that ripped through my beloved local state park, Sleeping Giant. And um, I joined the trail crew. Uh, well, partly, I, you know, I wanted to help, but also it was the only way to legally get back in the park. And mm -hmm. I just lucked into a team that had, um, we had a Sawyer and then usually at least two helpers. Sometimes they more people came and then we just sort of stood around. But the helpers were to move the logs that were, you know, the, the trees that were cut down and, and chopped into smaller pieces. We had to get those off the trail. That was our job. And, and also, you know, clipping some stuff along the way, the small stuff. But it was so delightful to be in the woods with this quiet, clean, uh, you know, chainsaw where you could talk as you worked and you weren't breathing in all that horrible stuff. And then mm -hmm. on the last day of the clean, you know, the major cleanup, there wasn't that much left to do. So all the different teams converged in one on one trail to finish. And mm -hmm. even though my team was still had the had the clean, quiet uh, saw. I was really close to several others that were not clean and quiet. They were noisy and filthy and horrible. And I think if I had had work in that situation the whole time, I wouldn't have enjoyed it one bit. <laughs> so, I mean, it really, it really is an issue. Now you, you talk about working on, uh, was it a state forest or a city forest? Yeah. State park, sleeping state giant. Park. That brings up a, a slightly different manner. We have a petition going calling on the state government to just unilaterally get rid of gas-powered equipment uh, used on its own land. There doesn't have to be any law. I assume the governor and the relevant agencies could just do this, and the, the, the state is flush with cash. Uh, they could just say, all right, on, on, on the land around highways, in the state forests, and parks, around state buildings, you're talking about a lot of area that's cared for with lawn care equipment and, and power saws, as, as you talked about. They could just say, all right, on such and such a date, you know, we won't use uh, any more gas-powered equipment. We'll go to uh, electric. Or maybe we'll allow some of that stuff to uh, rewild. That's certainly something that needs to be done. 
uh, rewilded areas, great for carbon capture. Uh, but uh, that uh, all these things, by the way, you people can access at our website, pepeace.org, is uh, our main uh, focus at the ver at this moment is talking about this bill SB 1145 and trying to amend it. And um, you know, it's right at, on top of our homepage. People can get all kinds of useful links. The a link to the article I wrote. Uh, a link to a model letter that they could write to legislator, uh, a link to the addresses of every legislator in the state of Connecticut. So we, we have it all very convenient if people go to pepeace.org. Well, that is a great wrap. I was gonna ask you about follow-up and what people can do and you just told us. So thank you, Stan Heller, so much for uh, talking about this really important issue. Um, it's really a matter, I mean, it's a matter of climate, it's a matter of public health, it's also just a matter of being able to live in your home, in your apartment, in your house, wherever you are, where, you know, you can not be assaulted by this wonderful, as I say, uh, ironically, mm -hmm. uh, form of lawn care. So thanks so much. Thank you for hosting me. My next guest is Jessica Sims, who I had the pleasure of meeting on our walk last year uh, for the future of Appalachia, we called it, and we walked the route of the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia and Virginia. And um, there's some exciting news. Uh, there was some bad news, and then the week next week there was some good news that we're going to share. This is something that's really near and dear to my heart. I've been down to Appalachia many times, uh, mostly reporting on mountaintop removal, coal mining. That's still around, but it's not as robust as it once was. And now they're just putting in gas pipelines. So welcome, Jess. Thank you so much. I'm excited to get to speak with you and, and talk about what's, what's the latest on Mountain Valley Pipeline. Now, you work uh, with a group called Appalachian Voices, and you're based in Virginia, right? And what, what is your role there? Uh, that's right. I'm the Virginia Field Coordinator for Appalachian Voices. So we're a, a regional organization working throughout Appalachia. We're just had our 25th anniversary. And uh, broadly, we work towards a just and equitable clean energy future for the Appalachian region and beyond. I work on our campaign to stop new fossil fuel infrastructure. And I am based in central Virginia. I was on that Zoom uh, 25th anniversary celebration. That was that was wonderful. Yeah, it was Thank exciting. You. <laughs> and yeah. I, you know all the the culture and the music and everything about uh, that whole region is just uh, just special to me. And I just remember one time I was uh, I mean I'm a pretty good hiker and we hike in the mountains and you know in in uh, New England all the time, but. Um, I had somebody asked me to run up to the top of a ridge to deliver some batteries to somebody who needed it for their flashlight. And I thought, okay, I'll just do this. <laughs> and oh my God, I thought it was going to die. <laughs> it was just, it was so steep. I mean, it was as uh, one of the people we met on the, on the walk last year called it grab a tree steep that, you know, you really, that was the only way to keep yourself upright. So that's how steep it is. And that's the terrain that we're talking about and where they want to build the stupid Mountain Valley Pipeline. So we will talk about this. Yeah, we saw a loss of federal authorizations last year. Um, I think it was in uh, early 2022. 
Um, but we've seen in that year, uh, Mountain Valley Pipeline and currently still is missing a Forest Service authorization, a Bureau of Land Management authorization, a 404 Clean Water Act permit from the Army Corps of Engineers. And at that time, they did not have a valid biological opinion from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, in relation to the Endangered Species Act. So if you're looking at a year ago, those were all of the federal authorizations that were missing. Um, they had at that time received their Virginia 401 water permit, the state component of the Clean Water Act permit in uh, December of 2021. So we saw Mountain Valley Pipeline connecting with agencies to try and regain those missing federal authorizations. The 401 cases that were related to both West Virginia and Virginia were argued uh, one in October of last year. That was the West Virginia 401 case. Um, and then the Virginia one was argued in January. And we just saw recent decisions reached on both of those. So the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld Virginia's 401 last week. And the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated West Virginia's 401 this week. Right, right. So, um, and this, this, I guess, was a three-judge panel in both cases. And I was wondering if it was the same three judges who unanimously upheld the one in Virginia and then a few months later unanimously rejected the one for West Virginia. It, do you know, was it the same set of judges? Yeah, you're correct. It is the same panel that heard both cases and decided one, the Virginia one last week and the West Virginia one this week. So a unanimous decision in, in both. Um, and it is the same judges that had looked and heard oral arguments for both cases. So I know uh, Senator Joe Manchin was very unhappy with the West Virginia decision, and he was, uh, you know, excoriating the, the Fourth Circuit as he did last year when he tried to get his own, uh, you know, bill through that would have forced the completion of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, regardless of anything, and taken it out of the hands of that circuit and put it into the D.C. Circuit just because that's what he wanted to do. However, that didn't pass, so that was good. But now that this uh, has been rejected, what does that mean for, if anything, for uh, the continued life of, of the MVP, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, or its possible demise, do you think? So it certainly speaks to the volatility of the project, which is always um, a, a major component of this. And uh, the applicant could reapply to West Virginia to uh, receive a new 401. So that's, that's part of normal procedure. If it is vacated, they can ap apply for a new permit with the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection. Um, but without the 401 component, the Army Corps cannot grant a 404 permit uh, for the state of West Virginia. And so uh, that's causing, would cause delay too. So you have to have the 401s first before the Army Corps can, um, can grant uh, their federal component of the Clean Water Act. So it is uh, certainly um, 
and uh, something where the the court identified some specific failures by the DEP that they did not address the history of MVP's water quality violations. They did not include a condition requiring MVP to comply with the construction stormwater protection permit and did not adequately adequately explain why they waived their review of location specific anti-degradation policies. Um, so they communicated uh, you know, the reasons they found that failure. Uh, so it does restart that process again uh, in West Virginia, and that would add delay uh, to the overall timeline uh, of receiving authorizations. It's already like years behind its original schedule, and I think it co the cost is like doubled or something to $6 billion, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I think original projections, and we we laid some of this out in our uh, our recent report that came out at the end of last year. Um, the uh, timeline originally this, and this is a report we made called "The Status and Impact of the Mountain Valley Pipeline." Um, at one point, they had said it would be 2018, one of the initial communications, uh, but then it does uh, they've communicated. Uh, new projected in-service dates um, that they have have not come to be come to pass. Um, so at this point, it is yeah about double in terms of budget from over three billion to over six billion. There's just been tremendous amount of destruction already. Does any company, whether you know it's completed or not completed, do they have a responsibility to? fix it as much as it can be fixed, like fix the, um, you know, get rid of the scars as much as possible? Yeah. So some of that is, that information is laid out ahead of time and what they would have submitted to the FERC um, about what their responsibilities are for uh, mitigation or kind of follow-up. So one thing that comes to mind first is the sort of rules around it would be def different for federal land. So there are different rules in terms of what you'd be uh, responsible for restoring, even if a project is canceled. I recently was sort of in conversation asking questions about what does that process look like for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline route, you know, canceled July 5th, 2020. Um, and my understanding now is that portion per what I was told by the Virginia DEQ um, portions can have the felled trees removed if the easement holder uh, wishes but in some cases it's been left sort of as they left it um, and also that that is a new and unprecedented process to some degree to have the project um, go through this sort of the way that that cancellation has done, it is a new process, admittedly, for the FERC and for Virginia's DEQ uh, to see how they're going to resolve it to what was uh, to an acceptable amount. Also depends on what would be within uh, easement agreements or yeah, agreements made between the, the landowners and the project developers for, for any project. Yeah, I, I have was looking at photos of this super steep section that they had, you know, dug the 
uh, trench for. Um, and I just can't, it just kind of boggles the mind that they would ever think of putting putting a pipeline in the steepest, you know, some of the steepest uh, areas in the entire country. Just talk a little bit, if you would, about some of the, you know, this was a legal case, but just talk a little bit about some of the uh, other you know, grassroots actions and the people involved, you know, the organizations that have been fighting this for so long and what impact that's had. Sure. So that collective people power has kept Mountain Valley Pipeline uh, front of mind for many within Virginia and has helped grow the national conversation about why the fracked gas pipeline is harmful now to water, would be harmful to climate, is part of the broader idea of climate disruption and why we shouldn't be added huge capacities of methane emissions uh, into the air and how that affects us, not just in Virginia, but across the country. This was a legal case, but just talk a little bit about some of the, uh, you know, grassroots actions and the people involved, you know, the organizations that have been fighting this for so long and what impact that's had. Sure. So that collective people power has kept the fight against the Mountain Valley Pipeline and the problems that come with the project, a water disaster in the present, a climate disaster in the future, front of mind. That's in West Virginia, that's in Virginia, and it's also North Carolina as the proposed Southgate expansion would impact uh, communities there. So this is a fight that has been and a, a battle to protect these regions since 2014 when the project was originally announced. And so what we saw from the very beginning is that community members who know that land, who know those mountains, who know those streams, were able to say, this is why this is a, a, a risky route, a bad route through a seismic zone, through areas with acidic soil, through areas that are gonna be very subject to erosion, through areas that have tier three streams, and are the drinking water for populations here, why this is such a bad plan. And they were able to get the word out, start building community with, with the other counties. The Power Coalition was formed, that's Protect Our Water Heritage Rights. That's the leading group fighting the Mountain Valley Pipeline um, and is made up of uh, communities that are along the route. Um, and so that public education they did and that collaboration, too, with those fighting the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, because that was also announced in 2014, um, helped build not only a pipeline, um, but a better understanding of what these projects would really mean, how they would impact our climate, uh, but a broader understanding of environmental justice issues within all of these states. Um, and so we've seen the resistance to Mountain Valley Pipeline has continued to grow. It is now more so a part of the national conversation. Um, some of that came to be during the fight against uh, Senator Manchin's uh, Energy Independence and Security Act last year, uh, which was uh, named the dirty deal uh, in terms of gutting bedrock environmental protections and fast-tracking projects such as Mountain Valley Pipeline, removing judicial review um, and sort of giving them a, a free pass to go around the normal environmental reviews. So this is a 
a fight that is nearing a decade, but is remarkably sustained, committed, resilient, and dedicated to stopping Mountain Valley Pipeline. Well, Jess Sims, thanks so much with uh, Appalachian Voices. Thanks so much for being on the show today. And uh, I'm sure I, I always get the updates. So we'll hopefully have something really big to celebrate one of these days soon. Yes, that would be great. And thanks for the chance to talk with you today, Melinda. Sure. Take care, Jess. We'll see you later. Okay, bye. -bye. bye. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m. here on WPKN 89.5 FM for more environmental news you can use.